the day-to-day intimacy of call time and fundraising, because I think fundraising is really intimate. It's partly what I really enjoy about it is I get to build these really awesome relationships with candidates and elected officials, and we're very collaborative. And I really enjoy that collaborative aspect of the work. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is named Kalani Tissot. He runs a Democratic fundraising firm called Tissot Solutions out of either Nevada or Nevada, depending on whether you're talking to someone there or not. Kalani has moved steadily from fundraising assistant to finance director for campaigns to starting his own firm that now has six employees. He's done a lot of things right so far, from taking advantage of new technology to building relationships. It's early, but he has a good story to tell. If you're interested in progressive political entrepreneurship or fundraising or political technology, you should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Kalani of Tissot Solutions. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. So, Kalani, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Absolutely. So, hi, everyone. My name is Kalani Tissot, and I am a political fundraiser based in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I am obsessed with fundraising. I think about it every day. It's one of the most important things that I really focus on. It's what our firm excels at, and I'm really excited to be here and kind of talk more about it. I imagine that for a client, having someone obsessed with fundraising is a wonderful thing. I myself find it challenging to imagine how one comes to that obsession because it strikes me as a demanding occupation in a, a lot of different ways, much like a lot of sales, honestly, in related fields. Tell me a little bit about uh, how you grew up and kind of what the seeds might be of your eventual interest in this field. Yeah, absolutely. So I was grew up in Washington State. I was born in Hawaii, hence the Hawaiian name. I grew up in Washington State, and I went to college at the University of Washington, and that was kind of my foray into politics. I was totally that debate kid in high school, so it was kind of a natural fit. But I ended up being a political science major when I went to college. But when I was in college, I had this phenomenal early mentor named Katie Ozog in Washington. I'm sure a lot of people from that community know who she is. She's amazing. And I had a class one day and she came up to me afterwards and said, Kalani, you're passionate. You love talking about politics in class. You're a great writer. Would you ever want to volunteer on a campaign? And I said, absolutely. And then I think she gave my phone number to two field organizers. The next thing I know, I had a bunch of phone calls from field organizers asking me if I wanted to volunteer. I found myself canvassing almost every weekend for a congressional campaign. I was doing a little bit of work for a C4 in the area, and I just kind of fell in love and I kept showing up. But I think that was the most important thing about getting involved with politics is that consistency of showing up. I transitioned from a volunteer to an intern, and then I kept doing other internships around the Seattle community on campaigns and in official offices. And then I got my first fundraising job in 2017. And I loved it. I worked for a fundraising consulting firm in Seattle. The principal was Raven McShane. She's amazing. And she kind of taught me so much of what I know about political fundraising. And I got to work on a ton of different races throughout Seattle, ranging from congressional to municipal, the state ledge, the whole gamut, even school board, which is very similar to what I do today. I really get to work on a lot of different races, uh, ranging from federal all the way down to very even small races. And I find it super rewarding. What was it about the canvassing and the fundraising, which are traditional entry-level 
political jobs that appeal to you so much? I think part of it was like the energy of the work was really fun. Like I remember, you know, my first internship as a field intern, I remember knocking on over a thousand doors and I would just keep showing up and keep coming back for more. I think it's hard work. Canvassing is not necessarily the easiest thing, but when you show up and you're you're willing to get rejected by someone at the door because you're working for a powerful, meaningful campaign, a candidate that you believe in. I loved my first candidate, totally put them on a pedestal when I was working for them the first time. A lot of first-time campaign staff members do that right off the bat, but it was super meaningful work and I, I really enjoyed it. And when I jumped to fundraising consulting as a first-timer, as like an associate at this firm, I just really enjoyed being able to play a really big role in working of candidates of all backgrounds and all types and all races and help them have the resources they need to win. I think that was really fun, that kind of collaborative work that we get to do. Both of those occupations have often worked through a technological interface, you know, to help you figure out what house to go to next, to help you figure out who to call next or reach out for money. Were you tech savvy? What's your relationship from early on in that space? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think about, you know, when I was a young teenager, I wanted to be like a computer scientist for a brief while. So I kind of played around with some basic coding, but I've never been like really heavy in the tech space. I think a lot of my like tech innovation has come in my career in the last two years as I've really explored what it means to build your own firm and to serve clients at a level of scale and how to bring in technology to empower services at that level. So I I wouldn't say it was there early on, but definitely it's something that I'm really focused on right now. Tell me a little bit about the fundraising firm. You mentioned Raven McShane. How did they operate? What did you learn there? Yeah, so Raven was super, super talented. She was very effective. She was Tammy Baldwin's 2012 um, um, Senate campaign finance director. So she had a ton of experience working on campaigns all over the country. When I was working for her, it was me and her, and it was a very small shop, right? And it was kind of a limited client base where she was very hands-on and very involved in everything we did day to day. But it was very much like, it wasn't like we had a lot of systems or processes or clear technology that we used. It was just us working with our clients. And I think a lot of political consulting firms are like that. You got a principal who's really talented and really effective what they do, but they don't have like infrastructure and assets that define their company and define their service and their product in the way that a more advanced, bigger company does. Forgetting about how you get to a particular donor, but when you find, you know, for whatever reason, you finally are connected, they answer your phone call or whatever, you have some information about them. What do you think is most effective in what you can say to that person to actually get them to donate and feel good about it and not be burnt out by that conversation or feel put upon? How do you manage that relationship well? And how can you make a call successful? It's a really good question. Um, So it really depends on the context of the call. I think when I talk to a donor, there are a lot of different reasons why I could be giving them a call. And there are a lot of different stages that donor could be at in kind of like our ladder of engagement with a campaign or with a client. Maybe in this context, you're talking about a cold call, a donor that has never spoken with me before or doesn't know who I am. But our firm, we do a lot of cold calls to verify phone numbers. And then we always do an upsell of scheduling a call to speak with our, our client, our candidate. I always want to get that donor in front of our candidate as much as possible. We only put verified phone numbers on a call sheet in front of our clients. Our clients do not call wrong numbers. It's really small but effective thing we do at the firm that has really made our client call time more effective. But when I'm on that call, when I'm on that call the donor, they have no idea who I am. I'm just a voice on the phone. I legitimately always force a smile. I'm always smiling when I'm talking to them. It doesn't matter if I'm on the worst day of my life, I'm smiling. I can see you doing that a lot when you're talking to me. Yes. Well, because it just changes your tone. Like it physically changes how you speak. And I know that's what, you know, field organizers will tell you. Smile when you dial. Everyone knows that. But I really do practice that. And then just lots of energy. And I like to try to treat strangers as if they're my friends. And frankly, if you're giving money to Democratic candidates in Nevada, you are doing a service. Like, thank you for all that you do. So I really walk into that phone call really warm, friendly, and lots of energy. And I try to get them on the phone with a client. And if I can do that, that's great. If not, no worries. Just move on to the next. Is it always the client that makes the ask or do you ever make the ask on behalf of the client? 
I really want a client to make the ask, the first ask at the very least, and kind of build that relationship with the donor. I feel once that relationship has been established, I can then come in and get that donor more engaged on events, on making a second donation, making a third donation, on getting them to be more involved with the campaign and then have the client still continue to engage them as well. But, you know, also it really depends for our smaller clients. We really want them to be the one to ask. But when you have a larger campaign that has a larger level of scale, like I think about my congressman, Stephen Horsford, or my attorney general, Aaron Ford, those are those were $5 million races last cycle. We can do a lot more work at the staff consultant level and making asks than we can for like a smaller race. Your LinkedIn shows you as deputy finance director for David Shapiro for Congress. Is that through Raven or is that a subsequent independent job. In 2018, I graduated University of Washington and I, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I, I love my job of Raven. So I got an offer to be the deputy finance director on this congressional campaign. It was a challenger race in Florida, in Sarasota. And it was 2018. It was the year we were going to take back the house. So I drove four days straight from Seattle to Sarasota the Monday after I graduated. Like there was no time in between me on stage, getting dinner with the family and hitting the road. It wasn't like through Raven, but we had a client that had a staff member who was was in Seattle on a campaign and then later moved to Florida and managed David's race. So it was kind of a connection I had built when I was working for her. And what did you learn there? Oh, I learned a lot. Um, I thought we had I thought we had a really good team. I thought we had a great candidate. He was really hardworking. He gave it his all day in, day out. We were all in this this little this small little office together. You know, it was a tough year to be in Florida. But I think about the relationships that I have on that team. Most people on that team are pretty much still in campaign politics today, which I think it can be rare with turnover in this industry. They're all off doing really incredible things. That was my first like time as a fundraising staff member on one campaign and like a real professional operation being in-house, not being a consultant, working on smaller races. So being able to build a finance plan was really awesome. And then it's Florida. I think one thing that's unique about Florida is you have so many retirees and seniors who have nothing but time on their hands. So what we did, I did about 50 events for that campaign, 50 fundraisers or meet and greets of an ask um, throughout my five months that I was in Florida. It was just so easy to do because there were so many people who wanted to help organize something. What was the technology on that campaign? Did you use things like War Chest? What were you working off of to do that kind of work on that particular congressional campaign? I think it was pretty pretty basic. So Google Sheets for, for pretty much everything. NGP 7, not 8. We used 7 at the time. Um, and then we also used RevUp. I think that was like a hot tool that cycle that we kind of briefly used here and there. I know it's, it was acquired by Numero. It's not really used a whole lot now. That was really it. It was kind of like, your, you know, we weren't that advanced technologically, but we kind of made up for it, I think, as most campaign staff do and working work crazy hours and getting the job done. Where did you get the 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 lists that you would call were they all like from the candidate and their connections did you purchase fundraising lists how did that those things come to you so i think in florida that was a ton of donor research we had a great group of interns we had a phenomenal finance team our call time manager did a ton of that our finance assistant did a ton of that i remember our finance assistant at the time I think he kind of wrote like a Python script that went through donor data to identify donors. I forget the exact framework, but I do remember being really inspired by that because I was like, I think that's where I got this idea that there's a better way of doing things, that there's a lot of room for improvement and how fundraising operations and campaigns are run compared to the old ways. And I think I got that idea from being in Florida, being on that race. For years, there have been firms that have either compiled state contribution data and sold it or bought data for fundraising from campaigns and resold it. This happens both on the sort of major donor type level as well as with email addresses of donors and stuff. What are your thoughts about like best practices from the perspective of a candidate they tend to be fairly jealous of their own data and their own donors. From the perspective of a fundraiser who might have multiple clients, you, you would want to use a donor for other deserving campaigns as well. And so how do you think about 
privacy and donor management and acquisition of donor data and things like that? First is I firmly believe the biggest lie in political fundraising is that FEC data is not as illegal to use for solicitation purposes. I feel like that law is constantly broken across America, constantly. It's really weird that we have a law that is consistently being violated but not enforced because the FEC commission does not have the teeth, the power to regulate and enforce it the way they should, and that creates an odd incentive structure. And I can kind of move on to the next piece about the data firms. I'm very excited about where that's going to. That's a whole another conversation. So data firms, I really think like the, the donor data firms, like you think of the grassroots analytics. I think of my friend Josh Laura, who was on the Shapiro campaign in 18, who started Sterling Strategies. They've done a lot of great work in the last two years. There's numerous others. You know, you talk about True Blue Analytics Action. I think there's like Frazier now. There's a few other groups. Um, forgive me for not getting them all out there. That's the. I think that's the fastest growing segment and political and like the political industry in America out there at all. I mean, I've seen the rapid rise of grassroots analytics these past few years. They've gone from just Danny with his idea that we can do data better to building a giant institution that has tons of staff that's really well grown. Like I really admire what he's built and what they built there. They are certainly burgeoning and profitable, and a lot of people are addicted to what they can provide. They're like a real corporation. They have investors. They have a cap table. Like They're very sophisticated and advanced in a way that most political firms are not. What about the privacy issue? I'm sorry I wrapped so many questions at one. What about the, the question about how do you think about the ownership of a donor to the extent that one can? Absolutely. I do think about this very, like all the time in a way that I don't think other, I don't think our clients think about. I don't think candidates really think about the value of their donor data the way they should. I also think that like for us, some of these data firms have benefited from that and the way they've been able to buy like a candidate's NGP or donor database after they've lost or after they've ran for honestly, what is probably pennies on the dollar what it's actually worth. Like that's a huge practice that a lot of, a lot of firms are doing now. And I think Um, They're really benefiting from that. For my clients, for example, I am super mindful of who owns what data and who doesn't. Like what data is owned by my firm and what data is owned by the clients. And then we kind of get into the definition of who is fair game. So to me, if a client has a donor who's only ever given to them or only ever given to them and one person, or like a friend who's out of state or like a family member, someone who's not in the political community here in Nevada we're never going to have anyone ever solicit that person ever. That is a hard line for us. It also makes no sense, right? You think about the circle of benefit and fundraising that people only give when they benefit from doing so. And if you can't identify a reason why one client's cousin would give to another one, you should never solicit them in the first place. We're mindful of that. We make sure that like you know, a client's donor is their donor. But then there are a ton of people in Nevada and a ton of people in other states that give to three or more candidates every cycle. And to me, that means you're fair game. If you're giving to multiple candidates, that means that you are, you're part of the political community, that you have a demonstrated interest in giving to political candidates and that you could benefit from building relationships with others. How do you think about the relationship between the kind of fundraising, which I think is most of what you do versus the email fundraising or online fundraising, which tends to be a different silo for some reason in our world currently. How do you think about that data and that practice and how do you integrate with it? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. So for our, our biggest campaigns, we would work with a third-party digital firm to manage the program. For our smaller ones, we would do it in-house. We helped campaigns like small school board campaigns do fundraising emails in a way that I don't think school board campaigns have ever done fundraising emails. But when you talk about the data piece of it all, you need a professional firm. If you're going to do like six figures in acquisition, you need a professional firm that not only is going to have those relationships and those contacts to broker those list acquisitions, but also can really instill best practices and bring in the best email copy and strategy to kind of make the most of that investment. 
the numbers that I talk about with my clients on acquisition only go up every cycle. Every cycle, it feels like we're just going to spend more and more money. Um, last cycle, peer-to-peer texting list rentals was like the hottest product on the market. And every major client I did that with had a phenomenal ROI. And we just kept throwing more and more budget towards that because I think that's here to stay. That's probably the most cheapest form of donor acquisition out there. But I also know that it's like a huge revenue generator for some of these data firms. And that's why, you know, it's a great product for them. Yeah. Help me understand your career post the 2018 campaign. What did you do next? And what was the transition to starting your own firm? Yeah, so I was unemployed. We lost, right? Florida was a bad year in 2018 to be a Democrat, unfortunately. And so I did another cross-country drive home, one of my favorite things. I've done that four times now. And I got back home and I was, you know, I was unemployed for the holidays, great conversations. And I'm sure so many campaign staff members have had with their family that you're only temporary unemployed, but you're moving on to the next big cycle. You just got to wait. I had multiple offers, but one offer that I pursued was the opportunity to work on a Pittsburgh city council race. We had this candidate that had a phenomenal life story who was a natural leader and was not traditionally from politics. So I thought, this is exciting. I'm going to move to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I'm going to work on this great race. And then I think three weeks after I moved to Pittsburgh, after the new year in January 19, he decided to drop out and decided not to run. So I was out of a gig. Bummer. Yeah, that was a bummer. (laughs) I met some really good, cool people, which I'm grateful for. Yeah. But, you know. Sometimes in life, you got to try stuff and not everything works. You got to be willing to take a risk, especially in this industry, right? Had you rented a place? You know, so I, I had supporter housing in that he had a, my candidate had a two bedroom apartment and he let me sleep in his other bedroom. Wow. Do you know what occasioned him deciding to drop out? I, I think, you know, he had this grand idea of what of running for office and what he thought it looked like. And the actual making the sausage of what it would entail was very different from what he assumed it was. It was also very uncomfortable for him to ask other people for donations. I think there's a few factors there. He was a black man of a lot of money and he was used to, you know, growing up that like people would hit him up for money all the time and he would always turn them down. They were never asking him for donations, but to him, like having to ask other people for money was just such frowned upon. I try to talk to him about like, this is all about the organization and the impact and the mission and the values that you're fighting for. But I think that was really hard for him to process. So how did you bounce back from that? So you've kind of made a commitment. You've started to get interested. Dead end. What was next? How did you deal with it? Yeah. So I was unemployed again, second time in a few months. And I drove down to DC and stayed at some Airbnbs, tried to take some coffee meetings. I think I applied for every single fundraising job that was available. In January of 2019, if you were trying to hire someone for finance in late January 2019, you probably saw my resume. Every day I was just shooting things off. And I had gotten a call to interview for the Democratic Party of South Carolina and to be their finance director. And I took it and I thought it was really interesting. I was really interested in the South and and that state. And I I said yes. And so after being employed for a few weeks, I took the offer and I drove down to Columbia and kind of started my next adventure. Who was running the party then? I think it's the same chairman now, Trav Robertson. Yeah. And how did that party feel to you as a place to work? Well, you know, I I really, so I think about my time in South Carolina, I was in South Carolina for about six to seven months before I moved to Nevada. And I really enjoyed the people there. They were some of the most welcoming and accepting people in the party. You think about Democratic Party in South Carolina, you're talking about the majority black women. Those are are Democratic voters in South Carolina. And so that experience was just awesome. I mean, the culture was good. The people were so nice. The food was phenomenal. I miss it all the time. You know, at the time, I was trying to figure out what my future was and what kind of like professional goals and environment I wanted to be in. And I just realized that six months in that that I couldn't build the career I kind of wanted to build in in Democratic politics in South Carolina and I had to leave. So I called the DCCC and they said there's a member of Congress, great guy. His name is Congressman Stephen Horsford. He needs to hire a finance director. He's a frontline member. And I took that call and I interviewed and, and I left and moved to Nevada. And here I am today. So that's an unusual move. That's an odd year. So was it hard to leave behind that? Was it a big, like, was it a big step up for you in terms of 
a fit in a job? You know, I, I think having worked on congressional campaigns when in Seattle and in Florida um, and continuing to be a finance director in South Carolina, I was ready for it. So I was really excited about it. I think it was hard to leave behind the life that I had built. I think every campaign staffer has that when they move to a new state is they build a new life and you build friends and you build a lifestyle. And then you have to leave that behind and rebuild it wherever you go. So that was probably the hardest part. And I had never been to Las Vegas. I literally flew in, um, got coffee with him to do the second point of the interview. And he offered me the job. And next thing I know, I was flying back to Columbia and then driving again four days straight from South Carolina to Las Vegas, Nevada to start my next adventure. It is not an unusual story that you're telling about the beginnings of a career in politics. What I think is instructive about it is the resilience that you're showing here, right? It's not easy to, you know, for a young man or young woman to uproot themselves and start again in a new place with a new job. And it takes a certain kind of self-starting capability and so on to do that, right? I always take a lot of initiative. I think that's what's gotten me to where I am today. But I want to be frank. I have a lot of privilege that I come from, right? I grew up in a great family. My parents are very educated and they had really good career jobs. And I feel like I was in a position to take a lot of risk after I graduated college. That's a position that not a lot of staffers, especially staffers who are more come from more diverse backgrounds or different communities, may not be able to take that level of risk. So partly it's like you got to be resilient to make it in politics and make it in campaigns. But if we want to build a more inclusive environment, I don't think you should have to be that resilient to try to build a successful career in this industry. There isn't automatically a support system for itinerant staffers. And I know that people have ideas about improving that. I don't think there's something that's fully come to fruition in that regard that I'm aware of. Tell me about Stephen Horsford and working with him. Yeah, so I've been working for him for over three years now. My first day was September 1st, 2019. And he's been, I want to say, my ride or die ever since. He brought me to Nevada, and it was really great kind of working for him these past few years. He's now the chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus. He's thrilled. It's an honor for him. He's super excited about that position and kind of the impact that he can create with it. He's been a frontline candidate the whole time. We've been raising money kind of nonstop, and it's been very consistent work the entire time. Stephen is a candidate. One of his unique backgrounds is that he has lost. He lost in 2014. So there are very few candidates, elected officials, who know what it means to lose a campaign in the way that he does. And I think that kind of um, gives him a little bit more wisdom in how he approaches his campaigns. It's been really great. I think about the 2020 cycle, we did about 3.5 million in 2022. We were just shy of five, like 4.950, which is kind of upsetting because it's like, gosh, if I worked a little bit harder, I could have found 50,000 more dollars and we would have hit the 5 million mark. But it's been really rewarding to kind of see him grow and see his style of leadership and to work with a lot of great people on the way. There's kind of an intimacy to the relationship between a fundraiser, someone who manages call time for an elected official and that elected official. Typically, you see their irritation. You see sometimes dislike of having to, to do a repetitive task like that. Like our democracy around fundraising for elected officials is not well organized. It really ought not be what a primary occupation, I don't think. But you also see something about their humanity. Maybe not specifically with the relationship to this congressman, but but talk about that that relationship and and what you think of it. Well, I mean, I, I think about you know talk about humanity. I think about Stephen's story and the congressman's story about how he grew up in one of the hardest zip codes of Las Vegas, about the struggles that his family had early on, and how at a very young age he had to kind of be a leader and work very hard to provide for his family, and how that kind of affected him. So you know. I think that story motivates me when I work for him. I think about how his background that shaped him into the leader he is today, how he understands what it means to go through hardship. He understands what it means to achieve the American dream. And I, it sounds so cliche. It sounds so standard. But that man has really worked hard to get to where he is today. That's where a lot of my respect comes from him. But I think on the broader point, 
you know, the day-to-day intimacy of call time and fundraising, because I think fundraising is really intimate. It's partly what I really enjoy about it is I get to build these really awesome relationships with candidates and elected officials, and we're very collaborative. And I really enjoy that collaborative aspect of the work. I think that's something that really gets me up every day and continue to do it. You see the highs when you know you get a very large pledge or you get a very large donation in the door. You see the lows when you, you call a donor who's just a little bit too much and a little too, you know, maybe, you know, like Las Vegas is a very interesting place. Nevada is a very interesting place. We have a lot of personalities and characters down here that I that we are managing and navigating sometimes. Because of that, it kind of it can make call time really fun. A typical career path for a finance director is be finance director for bigger and bigger campaigns, maybe become a campaign manager, work for a big progressive institution, Planned Parenthood or something, or some people become professional fundraisers, acquire multiple clients, become entrepreneurs in their own right. And there are quite a variety of ways that people have done that. You have done even more of a wrinkle on it in that you have both kind of gone down that path of becoming a fundraising consultant, but also added software into the mix to manage it. What's the moment when you just, when you decide I'm going to go out on my own, I'm going to hang up my own shingle. I'm going to take on more than one client. I'm not going to staff one person. I'm going to try to make this a business. After having dr- drove, you know, cross country four times and moved to all these States and rebuilt my life, I was ready to live in one place. And that was really important to me was to be in one state and be able to build relationships of others and be able to invest in those relationships of others. Because it's such a weird dynamic when you, know, you spend a year in a state on a campaign or whatever amount of time you built all these relationships, but you know you're going to leave. So it's really hard to think long term in that mindset. And to me, I want to have a family. I want to get married in Nevada. I want to have kids here. And I wanted to do something that was a little bit more sustainable. That was really important to me and have a place called home. And I found that home in Vegas. So I think that was a big factor in my decision to start a firm is I wanted to excel at being a fundraiser. And I wanted to have geographic consistency in where I lived and build friends that I can invest in for years and donor relationships I can invest in for years, which I think has been super rewarding to be you know, working with some of the same donors for over three years now. Relationships really compound, really compound. And when you're constantly moving from place to place, um, you can lose out on that sometimes. What were the steps you had to take? Well, so I went to the congressman after he won in 2020, and I asked for his blessing. I said, this was my vision. This was my dream. We were at a Buffalo Wild Wings. I'll always remember that, that lunch we got when I said, I want to start my own firm. I was really fortunate, and this is kind of unorthodox, but I was doing a little bit of work on the side for the attorney general already that year. A congressman had introduced me to him, and he needed like a little bit of help. He wasn't raising a ton of money, but you know, an event here and there. So like, I kind of had an approved side hustle, which I know that's not a traditional setup for most finance directors. They're very focused on one race. So I knew the attorney general was up in 22 and I knew that I wanted to stay in Nevada. So I asked him for his blessing and I got it. I don't think either of us realized at the time what it would grow to. I think I had this idea that, you know, I'll get, you know, one or two staff members and we'll get a few more clients and we'll be a small shop. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll have a great time. We have had a great time, but what emerged after two years of hard work was much more than I had ever anticipated. What did emerge? So I think where we are now, we're I'm on my third year of business. The firm was started January 4th, 2021. That's when I got my business license and started my entity. But after the 2022 cycle, we kind of grew from just me, me with an idea. And I had like nothing. I had like a Google sheet and like a Google doc of like, here's what I want to do on the firm. It was, I look back at it now and I go through those documents again. And it's so awesome to reflect upon. We grew from just that to having six staff members at the firm in addition to me. So we were a team of seven by the end of the 22 cycle. We had over 17 candidate clients, over 20 clients in total. It's kind of a mix of like candidate clients and then um, our state's Young Dems chapter that we do professionally fundraise for, the Nevada Conservation League. We did provide some data to some state legislative candidates, which is more of a product than a formal service. Does that mean that that Nevada was bereft of good democratic fundraising firms before? Is there competition in Nevada? Well, Nathaniel, I got to correct you. It's Nevada. 
Oh my Nevada. God. No, we say Nevada in Colorado. Oh, I'm sorry. You, gotta <laughs> say Nevada. you can't come to Nevada and say it wrong. So how do you say it? Nevada. Okay. It's Nevada. I'll yeah. try. I'll try to do that. What I'll tell you, this is you say Missouri, Missouri. You don't say Missouri. We don't say Missouri. I think some people do. That, and that's fair, but <laughs> this was a whole dynamic. It's not just you. Yeah. Um, we've had presidential candidates coming to Nevada for the 2020 cycle, and they were saying our state wrong. Like, you could just tell they were not ready to campaign in Nevada. You, do you know I live on Nevada Avenue in D.C.? Okay. I mean, I don't think it's Nevada Avenue, so it's probably hard for me, but I, a, I appreciate you calling me on it. Is there an H in, in the avenue on the on the sign? Nevada. No, there's, it's spelled if the same way. It, you can do it. It's a state street. In any case, uh, what was my question? Um, oh my gosh, I got distracted. Yeah. Uh, oh, the void. Yes. What's up with these uh, various candidates not already having a firm? and or, or was there someone who wasn't performing well? Or how did that look? So I think I got, I don't want to say it any other way. I got lucky in that there was no established firm in Nevada when I launched mine. And I don't think very few people are ever in that position when they have no competition and they can just grow and provide a service that's very much in demand. I look back in Seattle in my early days, and there are some very established fundraising firms that have been there a long time. You think of Tracy Newman, you think of Blue Wave, you think of Catherine Bobman, and when Raven was there, and there are a few others. And like I think of Seattle and other blue states as having a very advanced political industrial complex, for lack of a better term, of consultants who live there, who've been there a long time. And then you go to battleground states, and because there's been so many campaigns and staff coming in and out and a little bit of volatility in the elected officials in that state, I have this theory that battleground states have less of an industrial established group of consultants than blue states do for Democrats. I would love to test that theory in other states. I'm totally open to that, but there was a void. And I quickly worked to really fill that and to do that in a sustainable way. But certainly that took a lot of my time and weekends and energy to kind of make that happen. One of the things that makes political fundraising a good business is that a lot of people don't like to do it. You clearly have a thing for it. And when you have that interest and desire and people need the service, you're solving a problem for them. That's a very good basis for getting a business going. It's a competitive advantage. You provide a service that other people don't want to do. Yes. So tell me, getting those extra clients beyond the attorney general and the congressman that, that you kind of came with, was it hard? Did they get referred to you by your current clients? How did you land them? Yeah, so Nevada is a small state. So I think it's a combination of word of mouth, but also I did pursue some of them as well. You know, I started with the two and then the attorney general introduced me to the state treasurer, Zach Conine. Um, and then I got through like a friend who was at, like, I have a really good friend. Her name is Demi Falcon in Nevada. And she was like, someone was texting her about finding a fundraiser for Cedric Creer. He's a Las Vegas city councilman running to be mayor of Vegas. He's up this cycle. And I got connected to, to him that way. Funny enough, him and Horsford have this long history. They ran against each other back in 2004 for state Senate, very much a small world. So then I had the councilman and then I knew that Cisco Aguilar was going to run for secretary of state. I heard it through the grapevine and he was a pretty active donor in Nevada. So I called him and said, hey, I want to meet with you. I want to get coffee. I want to talk about fundraising for your campaign. I think it was literally like April 4th when I called him on April 1st, I had donated a kidney. So literally days as I was recovering, I was like, I got to meet with this guy. I think that's been my dangerous mentality is that I probably pushed myself too Wait, hard. Who did you donate a kidney to? So my, it's through, it's from my father. My father okay. um, was. I um, wasn't just some donor. I, I was getting worried there that you're going above and beyond too much. No, I mean, but certainly I think more people should be considered becoming a kidney donor, but my dad needed it and there was, there was no one else who could step up. That's so a major, like, a major thing to do. So keep going. So I called Cisco, met with him. We talked about it. I told him I wanted to build the best fundraising firm in Nevada. And we started working with him. And that was really fun because I'm sure you know how important and top of mind secretary of state races were this past cycle. And Nevada was one of the, you know, one of the premier ones. 
And then, you know, it kind of just grew from word of mouth, um, got in touch with, got a meeting with Pamela Goins Brown. She was a city councilman for North Las Vegas. That's a separate city than the city of Las Vegas. And we helped her become Nevada's first black mayor. And I'm hoping that I can have Cedric become Nevada's second black mayor in 24. And then from there, we kind of grew. The lieutenant governor had a, we, our former lieutenant governor took a job in the White House. So there was an appointment process. So we got to work with the appointed LG. We were already doing three other statewide. It really made sense for us to do the fourth. Um, and then I really wanted to work in Reno and Washoe. If you know Nevada, you know that we have Las Vegas. It's where the majority of the state's population is. We have Reno and Washoe, and then we have all these rules. And I wish I could do candidates in rural counties one day. We're not there yet. It's, it's hard. They don't, those campaigns aren't that big. Um, but I really wanted to work on Washoe and Reno candidates. So I flew up to Reno and I just did coffee meetings all day. And a general consultant, his name is Riley Sun. He's an awesome guy. I met with him and I said, Riley, you work with all these great candidates. Riley worked with the mayor of Reno. He had about eight or nine clients he was working with the 22 cycle. I said, I have a vision. I want to do fundraising for your candidates. We also do state and local compliance. It's pretty straightforward in Nevada. And I want to take that off your plate. I want you to focus on what you do best, which is you know messaging and campaign management and communications and field, and let me handle fundraising because that's what I'm passionate about. And he took a shot on me. And we grew pretty much overnight in Reno. I found a really great guy, Ian Montgomery, to be our, our Northern Nevada finance director. And we grew from like having no Reno Washoe clients to having like nine or so in a very short period of time that Ian was working on. Some fundraisers have always built their own technology going back to the beginning of computers and politics. Others use off the shelf software. Why did you decide to build your own tech stack and what is it? Yeah, so I quickly realized that to build the firm I wanted to build, we needed to be tech-enabled. We need tech-enabled services that would really help us be better fundraisers. And I just was not happy with what was available. I was like, how can I use NGP when I have all these different clients or what, what that would look like? So I just started exploring. And I think at the same time, I was getting into like learning about like the small business community and entrepreneurs and other industries. And a lot of them were talking about automation, like Zapier or Airtable. And I found these tools, um, this, this essentially what it's called is the no code movement, where you can build apps and solutions on certain platforms that don't require you to actually know how to code software. And I was like, this is a world of opportunity. I just dived in. I became like obsessed. And every weekend early on, I was like, how can I mold Airtable into a solution that can help me do political fundraising. So I had this idea and then I found an automation consultant on Upwork. And I said, this is what I want to build. I want to build a CRM. I know we can do a CRM in Airtable. It's going to be so much better than Google Sheets. And I was like, I told him, this is what I want to do. And we just, we, we put up like an MVP together for the firm and it worked really well. It's super fast. It was super quick. Like it's it's one of the most empowered to be really effective. And I just kept adding more and more features to it from there to make it even better. The original version of NGP for fundraising that I built was set up first for fundraising firms long before we got to candidates. And it, so it allowed a fundraiser to manage multiple campaigns through one app and see who had given to whom and to generate call sheets or whatever for a particular operation while only managing the addresses and other contact information like that once for the firm. Do you have a setup like that or how do you how do you handle the management of data across different clients which sounds like is what you were tackling? Yeah, so we have an Airtable CRM for every client. They have their own CRM. Um, and then we have our own relational donor database in Airtable and they're connected which I can talk about. It's really cool. Two of like our biggest clients, you know, Horsford's on NGP because he's a federal client and the compliance consultant needs it for the reports. And Ford was on Numero. At the time, we did not have an enterprise contract of Airtable like I do now. So now we have a much expanded record universe. And so each client has their own CRM. And then we connect that to our relational donor database. I can import donors into CRMs from our central donor database. And then I even created the sync system Whenever we update like a mobile phone or an email or um, someone's giving history in our central database, it'll automatically up to update 
each donor record in a client CRM. So if I have a single donor record in like 10 CRMs, we have a new mobile phone for that person because it changed numbers. We can update it in like two clicks and it'll go across the entire ecosystem. So that was really important to me is because you've got to be able to manage your data. And if you don't have those systems in place when you're operating at scale, it's not going to set you up for success. What else did you then bring in around Airtable? You've sort of mentioned a few of the automation type things, but what else are you deploying on behalf of your clients and your firm? Yeah, so I I guess on on the CRM really quickly, we have like a one-click email templates and one-click pledge templates or text templates. So if a client speaks of a donor, we can send them an email in 20 seconds right after the call by doing one click. And we can send them a text message 20 seconds after the call in one click that sends them all the information they need about donating, writing the check, you name it. Um, And that is also powered through OpenPhone. I know a lot of campaign staff are super familiar with Google Voice. I used to get a new Google Voice number every state I worked in. OpenPhone to me is like a better Google Voice. It's a much more advanced product. And so like our our pledge texts are through OpenPhone, through our business line. And then we have these really cool setup where like a client can text our business line, like they can text total to our business line and they'll get their total amount raised for the cycle automatically texted back to them. We have the same thing for quarter. And then we have a setup for they can text for the cell of a donor name in their CRM or they can text the name of a donor and get the cell phone back for their CRM. That's all automated. To me, that's like a self-service feature we offer our clients, which I'm really excited about. And then beyond Airtable, I mean, I talk about Airtable because it's such core to our business, but we use a lot of Zapier. Zapier is a really great no-code automation tool that allows you to connect apps together and automate certain features. When one trigger happens, you can take all these actions here. We have automated Slack channels. Every ActBlue donation hits for our client, hits one of our donation feed Slack channels. We've kind of created this central dashboard of client information all in Slack. We have a client news channel for our RSS feeds about our clients. We have a client Twitter channel about tweets from our clients. We have a central RSVP channel that's like all of our text and email RSVPs um, that go through our central RSVP system for events. And so Slack's been super helpful. And then we have a whole suite of other software products that we use to be even more effective. What's the business model? How do you charge your clients? Are these retainers? Do you get anything in terms of bonus or percentage when you raise money? Yeah, that's a great question from on that standpoint. So traditional models, retainers, and then a win bonus. I'm adding on top of that. So I think pricing and pricing as a political entrepreneur is really hard. First of all, I think everyone who starts their own political firm in any sense is going to learn pricing probably the hard way. I think that's the only way to learn it. And frankly, you're probably going to underprice yourself. You're always going to underprice yourself at the start and learn what you should put your price point at. So for us, it's kind of a new setup. For our larger campaigns, it's very different than our smaller campaigns. For our our small to mid-sized races, I'm trying to be at about 8% of their budget. And the way we calculate that is we set up a goal for like their budget for the cycle, like how much we want to raise in our finance plan. And then I kind of build out retainers. I take like a smaller number, like maybe our bold goal is 500,000. I'll take like 350 as our baseline and I'll build retainers off of like 8% of 350 over our months we engage with the client and service them. And then I've started to add, once we hit a certain threshold, we could then charge commission fee of all funds raised. And the reason I've, I've done that is it allows us to participate in upside, it allows the firm to benefit more financially when clients overperform and raise large amounts of money. And it just motivates us to help them hit bigger and bigger goals. One of the considerations in a business like this is the different nature of the consulting side from the software side. And yours seem very integrated. Have you thought about allowing your technology to be used by other consulting firms, or would you only use it for yourself? How do you think about the future of the business in both consulting and in technology? Yeah. So I, through word of mouth, I've shared with fundraisers around the country some of the tools that we're using. And one of my goals is to build a better community of democratic fundraisers in America. To that end, and this is probably a great place to announce it, I'm working with a few other fundraisers on launching like a national association of democratic political fundraisers. 
And we don't really have anything like that in America. And we want to create a community of people nationwide who are like finance directors or finance staff or fundraising consultants to kind of come together, talk about best practices, network, and kind of build that community, which we're really excited about. Separately from that, I did sell one campaign, my CRM, an external campaign. And I very quickly realized, and I'm sure you this probably put a smile on your face, is that when you sell a CRM, you're not just selling technology, you're also selling a ton of customer service. And it's a very different business model than what we do at the firm. And so I've kind of made a decision after doing that, that that is not a scalable product for me and how I want to spend my time. I want to spend my time servicing our clients here in Nevada. So I'm super careful about selling a CRM outside to an external client. But I do want to create more products and more productized services that I can sell nationwide that'll help campaigns and help fundraisers. I'm working on that. What about other states? Like it seems like if you can do a purple state like Nevada, Arizona, something relatively (laughs) nearby might be a good way to expand also. I've definitely thought about that. I've thought about Arizona. I've made some calls. I've talked to some people. I think my decision has been not this cycle, maybe next cycle. I would love to be multi-state and regional. I'm going to stay very far from California. I never want to compete in California. Talk about quite the unique political landscape. Well, don't say never about anything, but... That's fair. That's fair. Someone might find this 10 years later, and next thing I know, I'm fundraising in California. But I really want to focus on Nevada first and foremost. This is my home. And I feel like there's so much more for us to do here in the state. And there's so much more for us to fix on our back end. Like our back end is awesome. I'm trying to work more on like, how do I improve my systems? How do I improve our processes? And we've made a lot of progress since November 22, but there's still more work to be done before our product is flawless. And that's what I'm trying to pursue. There's no substitute in building software to having clients and seeing how they use it and learning from them and improving. And by the way, you will never, it will never become flawless because there will always be something else to do. Fair. I want to get close. I want to be able to be, I'm I'm super confident about our product for candidates right now. Actually, we're building out our whole different model for how we serve nonprofits. We've been very fortunate to get clients who are affiliates of national organizations like the Nevada Plant Parenthood Votes, Nevada Conservation League, and the ACLU of Nevada. We're really thrilled to be working with them. This year is also about building out our nonprofit model really well. And that's that's very different. It's fairly different than campaign fundraising. You mentioned this National Association of Democratic Fundraisers. Tell me about what your aspirations are for that. What is wrong out there that you would like to see improved by the virtue of such a group? Yeah, we want to create community because I don't feel like there's a ton of community among political fundraisers on the D side in America. I think it'd be great, you know, for us to network with each other, for us to talk about best practices, for us to do events. And one of our ideas, I mean, you have like campaigns and elections has their event circuit. You have the American Association of Political Consultants that have their event circuit. Is like maybe we can even do our own sidelong events for like every year we do a happy hour at one of their big annual events, or we do like a happy hour in DC and just bring more people together, share best practices. I really want to share the work I do here in Nevada because I think other fundraising consultants in America could benefit from this. When I I saw in Florida, when I saw in Seattle, when I realized there was a better way of doing things, I think that mission is not just how I can do things a little bit better or our team can do things a little bit better, but how we can change how fundraising is done in America. Because I I still think there is a ton of room for improvement on the candidate side. Oh, I'm, I'm certain there is. Every era requires new, new ways of doing things like the texting people and the technology that's available is always changing. And so you want to be taking advantage of that kind of thing. Yes. Um, Just really quickly, that made me think of Switchboard, which is this SMS broadcast platform. Eric Majewski and his team, they made I've, it. I've had him on the podcast. Yes. Great. I am so obsessed with that platform. Eric is doing such a great job. If y'all have not used Switchboard for SMS fundraising, please check it out because that's like emerging tech that just came out last cycle. It's changing the game. Another thing that strikes me is, you know, a lot of people who start businesses don't do a great job of attending to workflow and project management and automation and things like that, which can be so incredibly valuable in creating 
the right process and the right kinds of efficiencies to do a good job for the people. Have you thought about not just fundraising consultants, but other kinds of political service providers also maybe being able to benefit from what you're doing or learning about in that regard? That's a really good thought. And I guess I haven't given a ton of thought. One area I thought about is how a lot of like general consultants who you know manage small races are really just they're like they're effective because the principal consultant is really effective. We talked about this, but they don't have systems, they don't have processes, they don't have like a defined client onboarding process, they don't have a defined client offboarding process. They may even have like a formal service contract. I just think that you know we, we you know a lot of campaign staff are really good at working through their capacity and being effective through their time. But in the campaign world, we don't do a good job of training people how to manage. We don't do a really good job of like how to manage team. We don't talk about it enough or really instill best practices. And I think that creates a lot of problems. We also don't do a great job of training people on how to create systems and be process oriented. I think there's a wild amount of inconsistency in how finance programs, I'm sure how any program field comes, campaign management, you name it, is run in America because we don't have defined best practices in how we run campaigns. I mean, we talk about best practices, but there's no like book, like there needs to be a book. Like this is how you do fundraising for a house campaign, for example. That's a book the D-Trip should give every fundraiser they work with, but they don't have it, which is insane to me. I'm surprised they don't have it. I'm, I'm sure that that information resides there in some regard. Another thing that happens that didn't happen in my era, but happens in your era is because there are uh, political tech firms of scale, the PDIs and the NGPs and grassroots analytics now and some of the data firms to target smarts, Civitech, there are firms that have either raised money or made money who are interested in acquisitions of other folks in this space. When you start being successful, you start to hear from them. Have you? And what is your attitude towards combination, acquisition, things like that? Or is that something you haven't had time to think about? I have not had any of them approach me. I've thought about what it would look like to merge with other fundraising firms in America and kind of start like a national firm of office that specializes in multiple states, brainstorm that. I think there are some efficiencies that could come from there. I think we have a lot of, you're talking, you're talking, we have a lot of like tech firms and data firms that are heavily capitalized and are large companies, but we don't have large service firms. I mean, we may have like large media firms in the political space that probably have revenue in the tens of millions of dollars every cycle, hundreds of millions, but we don't have like really good, large capitalized basic service firms for campaigns. I don't know if I'm missing anything, but I don't think that exists. There is no like fundraising behemoth that does 300 campaigns a cycle in America. Well, there have been direct mail firms that have reached quite substantial size. I think there are the digital firms. They Some of them have gotten quite big, particularly digital advertising and people who do that. But there's always a new angle on the space. Scale is not the only thing that one wants. I mean, much more important, I think, is the fulfillment of doing good work for good clients and having good relationships. It's good to have a firm that produces enough to pay your people well and yourself well. Beyond that, there are decisions that go to you as a founder about what you want for yourself and for your firm and for your clients that are determinative, hopefully. It's easy to get swept up in scale or, or things like that. I think it is. And I think I was very obsessed with scale these past two years. A lot of the improvements we're making right now are making everything more sustainable. It's like better communicating to our clients when we're on paid leave and we're out of the office or when we have a company holiday. I'm trying to find time for myself to like take vacation this year. It's not something I've not really done past few years. I think a lot of campaign staff members kind of feel that urge to keep pushing, keep working and not take time for themselves. So it's like growing and being innovative and being effective and having great relationships with your clients, but also finding time to make it sustainable and meaningful for you. Because if you're a business owner and your business isn't working for you, what's the point of it all? Yeah, I agree with that. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? I think just... A big takeaway is I think we need more political entrepreneurs to open up their own firm. I think we need more people to take that risk. 
who believe that we can do better, who know that we can do things a lot better on campaigns across the country, that there's room for improvement. So I really encourage people to, to take that risk, to open up their own firm, hang up their shingle and give it a go. Do you have any particular advice for someone who's considering that? Ooh, that, that's a good question. There's a lot of like small things I would give them. And if there's anyone, you know, if you want to start your own fundraising firm, please reach out. I can email you like a two page PDF of like just quick, important things you need to know about how to be organized and how to set things up. A lot of people, when they start their political consulting firm, they don't realize that you need to have like a bookkeeper. You need to have QuickBooks. You need to learn how to do gusto. Like there's so many basic things that are an ordinary to other businesses that there aren't skills that they train us on in the campaign world that you're going to need to learn. And I'm happy to kind of like walk through other folks and how to do that. Were you going to say anything else in response to my question about other things I should have asked you? I think we're good. I think we covered a lot of ground. Well, I enjoyed interviewing you and I appreciate what you've built in a short time in an area that, uh, you know, has been of interest to me for a long time. So thanks for taking the time. Anything else you want to say? This was a lot of fun. This was great. Thank you. That was Kalani. He's at TissotSolutions.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit DemocracyGroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.